This is Charles Christoph Carter of Serial Dreadfuls, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 2 of Ghost Notes. For those of you who don't already know, Ghost Notes consist of letters, emails, texts, and other communications that have found their way to us. We don't include the author's last names, and we alter their first names when asked to do so. Any emphasis in reading these communications is added for dramatic effect. Are these accounts real, imagined, or simply works of fiction? Take a listen. We'll let you decide. This episode's ghost note came to us as a letter from a listener in Massachusetts. She asked that we not use her real name. My name is Karen, and I've been keeping a secret for 40 years. It's because of your commentary on cryptid researchers in Vermont, as well as your first episode of Ghost Notes, that I was able to muster the courage to write in and tell you my story. I'm originally from Michigan. I graduated high school in 1971 and got into the University of Vermont, famously known as UVM, on a partial scholarship. After four amazing years, I graduated with a degree in English. At the time, I was also very much in love with, I'll, I'll call him John. I knew this was going to be hard. I just just didn't think it would be this hard. Not after all these years. We were living in a cramped upstairs apartment. Actually, it was the attic of a two-story house. We roasted in the summer and froze during the winter. But we had each other. On one hot July night, John jumped out of bed and told me that he couldn't take it anymore. He told me that first thing in the morning, we were going to buy a newspaper and find somewhere else to live. I remember it like it was yesterday. We must have spent all afternoon poring over the for rent section of the paper. Finally, I saw John's expression brighten and he said, Aha! This is perfect! Where is it? I remember asking him. Moncton, he replied. Moncton? Where's that? I asked. Beats me, but that's where we're going. We're going to live in Moncton, John said triumphantly, giving me a big bear hug and then a quick kiss. Looking back on it, I wish we had just stayed in bed that hot summer morning, had dealt with the cramped space, the heat, the cold, just like we had the year before. We drove out to the place the following Saturday to take a look and to meet the owner, an absentee landlord from Connecticut. The place was several acres with an ancient farmhouse positioned on a slight rise a few yards from a bend in the hard-packed dirt road. There was a large barn across the road from the farmhouse that also went with the property. John's hopes of using the barn as a ceramic studio were immediately crushed when we were informed that the barn had been rented to our nearest neighbor some two miles up the road, who was a farmer and also caretaker of the property. The owner told us that he and the farmer had a deal where the owner gave him use of the barn as long as the farmer looked after the place. 
The owner seemed to be really anxious to rent the property and was giving us the hard sell. We told him that it seemed nice enough, but we were concerned about the age of the farmhouse and its isolated location. We asked him if any of his prior tenants had had any problems. I remember him shaking his head no. John asked him why the prior tenants had left. The owner said that the most recent tenant had left because he got a job down in Hartford. Confused, we asked him where the telephone poles were. He told us that there weren't any this far out and that if we had to make a call, we'd have to go to the gas station three miles away. He said that if it was an emergency, he was sure that Bill, our neighbor up the road, would accommodate us. I know what you're thinking, especially in this day and age where everyone has a cell phone. You have to understand that it was a different time, and that telephones, while common, were not as much the center of life as they are now. But even then, not having a telephone in your place was unusual. John and I asked the owner to give us a minute or two to talk things over as we walked to my car out of earshot. I remember like it was yesterday, us walking back and John shaking the owner's hand, both of them smiling. With age, you can look back on your life and see which moments were make-it-or-break-it moments, life-defining moments for good or for bad. This was one of those moments, and it was definitely for bad. We became friends of our neighbor Bill and his family. They were good people. I remember Bill shaking his head in frustration when we first introduced ourselves. Please tell me you aren't the people who rented that old wreck of a farmhouse, Bill had asked. John had initially gotten his back up, thinking it had something to do with him being Hispanic. Bill had put up his hand, signaling to John to hold on. It wasn't a comment on your race, son. No, I just can't stand it when that Connecticut crook swindles good people, usually young couples like yourselves, out of their hard-earned money for such, excuse my French, dear, a piece of shit hovel like that one. It's just not right. Is it really that bad? John had asked. Bill nodded his head up and down. I fear you folks are going to find out just how bad soon enough. Bill wasn't lying. The place was a disaster. One and a half weeks after having moved in, the plumbing went, along with the septic system. We were doing our business in the tall grass behind that farmhouse for close to two weeks before that cheap Connecticut son of a bitch finally got a plumber and honey dipper out there to fix the problem. That's when we first saw them, the holes and the basement walls. I remember the plumber calling up to John in the kitchen to come down and take a look at something. I followed him. You got down to the basement through a trap door in the kitchen off in the corner closest to the front door. You had to lower a ladder through the hole just to get down there. I remember getting off the ladder, stepping onto the moist dirt basement floor, and turning to see both John and the plumber standing still as statues, looking at something. The plumber's arm was held out, pointing at whatever it was they were looking at. I walked up and stood beside John, not prepared for what I would see. Oh my God, you said it, miss. Never seen anything like this before. Me and your husband, we were just trying to figure out what in the hell these things are, or who or what made them. There were two large, and by large I mean man-sized, holes burrowed into the far wall of the basement. I shined my light into one of them, but I didn't see a thing. Must go back pretty far is all I can figure, said the plumber in a Vermont accent. Gophers? I naively asked. 
You'd have thought the plumber's sides would have split, he laughed so hard as he slapped the side of one thigh with his hand. When he finally got his composure back, he wiped the tears from his eyes and answered, I didn't mean any offense by laughing, miss. It's just that. It's just... The plumber began to snicker, but quickly got his composure back once more. No, no, Chuck did that, miss. Chuck? Woodchuck? What you all call a gopher? Yeah, no woodchuck did that. If they ever reached that size, hell, we'd all be on the dinner menu. Well, do you have any idea as to what those holes could be? Asked John. The plumber scratched the whiskers on his chin and cocked his head to the side. Maybe. Maybe. It's possible. What's possible, John asked. These here holes could be for storing bodies, the plumber replied. Some type of receiving vaults. Never seen any like this, but it does make sense. Whoa, 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 so you're telling me that people died here and were, I began, stored in these holes. Yep, used to happen all the time. It gets so cold up here during the winter that the ground freezes solid. They didn't have no backhoes or bulldozers a hundred years ago. They'd have to store the bodies somewhere until they could finally give them a proper burial when the ground thawed in the spring. Again, I'm just speculating on what these holes might be. Do you think these holes could have any effect on the foundation of the house? John asked the plumber. No, nah, I don't think so. They're far enough down and they're small enough that you folks shouldn't have to worry about any shifting of the foundation or any sinkholes. You all should be fine. After that, we went on with our lives. Lord knows we tried, at least, especially during that winter. Every night coming home during that winter, we prayed that the farmhouse would still be there and hadn't burned to the ground. In order to keep the pipes from freezing, we had to stoke the wood-burning stove in such a way that it burned slowly for the entire day. You never want to leave something like that unattended. But what choice did we have? We both had to work. When we got home, we would spend the rest of the time trying to heat the farmhouse. It was so cold that we had to take heavy wool blankets and use them to cordon off the living room and kitchen in order to keep the heat from escaping to the rest of the house. Almost every night, John would have to get up out of bed and go into the minus 40 degree air and chop more wood because no matter how much he had chopped before going to work that day and before dinner that night, it never seemed to be enough. It was hell. We were never so happy for spring to come. It was a miracle that neither of us got sick that winter, especially John. As the weather warmed up, a barn cat began to come around the house. He was a massive tom, battle-scarred from fighting giant field rats. He became such a regular around the place that we decided to give him a name. We called him Barnabas like the vampire main character in the television series Dark Shadows. I remember John picking me up from work on one of the rare days he had off and coming home to find Barnabas stretched out on our couch, a bandage on one side of his face. Long story short, Barnabas had come up to John while he was outside like normal, when John had noticed a large abscess on Barnabas's right cheek. He had taken him to the vet, who had had pity on the poor animal and passed him up for free. The vet had also thrown in a regimen of antibiotics for Barnabas on the house. After that, Barnabas got promoted from barn cat to house cat. He'd stay with us during the evening, but insisted on being let out at night to hunt. Every morning, John or I would find the carcass of a giant field rat on the steps of our front porch, with Barnabas looking up at us proudly with a, 
Didn't I do good? Look on his face. John had found out that Barnabas had been getting into the basement through the same hole that the field rats had used. He said that there were a couple of nights when he had heard Barnabas and the rats fighting to the death in the basement. He was a good cat, keeping us and his house safe and rodent-free. It only took one night, however, for everything to begin to go to hell. That night, John woke me up out of a dead sleep. Shh! Get up! Get up! John whispered urgently. It was then that I heard Barnabas's growl revving up from a low to a high pitch, followed by a loud hiss. I immediately heard another noise, a low, warbly gurgle, followed by a sort of froggy bark. John and I crept down the stairs to the first floor and into the living room. We both knelt down on the old, warped hardwood floor and placed our faces close to the floorboards, listening, while at the same time peering down into the basement through the narrow gaps in the floorboards. There was a high-pitched shriek and then a thud, the sound of something wet, followed by the sounds of chewing and the cracking of bones. John and I looked up at each other, horrified expressions on our faces. Is Barnabas dead? I mouthed to John, tears in my eyes. He raised his shoulders to his ears and shook his head, mouthing, I don't know. There was no carcass of a field rat on our front porch step that morning, or the next one. Finally, John decided to go into the basement and find out what had happened to Barnabas. I had just come in from the car with an armload of groceries as he made his way down the ladder and into the basement. He was down there less than two minutes before he hurried back up through the open trap door in the floor. Did you find him? I asked. John didn't respond or look at me. Instead, he quickly pulled up the ladder, slammed the trap door shut, and locked it. Then he did something odd. He stormed outside and into the field behind the house. He came back staggering, holding a large rock in his arms, which he placed over half of the trap door. He practically sprinted out of the front door and back outside, returning with an even larger rock. His knees buckled with every step he took as he made his way, hunched over like an old man, to the trap door. As he placed the rock down on the trap door, it slipped from his hands and dropped. For a second, I thought that it might break through the trap door and fall into the basement below. The surprise on my face was overshadowed by the sheer look of terror on John's. He must have been thinking the same thing. His eyes were as wide as pie plates. The old warped kitchen floor bounced under the impact of the huge rock. John stared at both rocks, like they were sealing the very door to hell itself. What I didn't know at the time was that it wouldn't be long before I found out that in fact they were. John raised his head and looked at me like a wild man. He pointed to the rocks covering the trap door. Do not move those. Do you understand? Do you understand? Answer me. John, you're frightening me, I said. Answer me now, damn it, he yelled. Yes, yes, I understand, I said, tears streaming down my cheeks. John, tell me what's going on. What went on down there, I cried. John edged away from the trap door, never taking his eyes from it or the rocks he had placed on top of it. He pointed at the trap door again. There's something down there. I... I think it killed, no, I know it killed Barnabas. There was fur everywhere, and, and blood. There was a piece of Barnabas's bloody fur and skin about a foot inside one of those tunnels down there. 
What? I asked, totally confused. I, I have to find out where whatever it is is coming from, whether those tunnels come up anywhere outside. John threw open the screen door and raced into the field behind the house where he had found the rocks. I followed on his heels. They must be here. Those rocks were too large. They had to come from somewhere. I think that whatever it is dug them up and tossed them up here while it was burrowing, John mumbled to himself as he quickly walked through the field, brushing the tall grass aside with every step. I tried my best to keep up with him. I closed my eyes briefly as I batted the grass away from my face. When I opened them, John was gone. John? John, I cried out. Down here, came a muffled voice. It was so soft that I barely heard it. Over here, came the muffled voice again. Be careful. I slowed down, cautiously walking toward John's muted voice. I almost fell into the large hole before I could even react. Out of sheer reflex, I fell backwards as soon as I felt both of my feet beginning to slip down the edge of the hole. I landed on my butt. John called up from the hole asking if I was okay. I told him I was and then asked about him. He told me that he had twisted his ankle when he had landed, but that he was able to put weight on it. I asked if he could pull himself up. He told me no, that he couldn't reach the lip of the hole. I offered to get the ladder, but he stopped me, telling me that the ladder wasn't tall enough. I was stunned. I asked him how far he thought he had fallen. He told me somewhere between 12 to 15 feet. He was lucky to still be alive. He called up and said that he thought he was in some sort of a tunnel and asked me to stand over the hole and to point in the direction of the house. Holy shit, I remember him saying. The basement. I think this thing empties out into the farmhouse basement. Move the rocks off the trap door. I ran as fast as I could to the farmhouse, almost crashing through the screen door. It took all of my strength to shove the two boulders off of the trap door. If it hadn't been for the adrenaline, I don't think I would have been able to do it. I unlocked the trap door, threw it open, and quickly lowered the ladder into the basement. That's when I heard what sounded like a banshee scream. It was John. He was in trouble. Without thinking, I hurried down the ladder, missing the last three steps and falling to the dirt floor below. I jumped up and ran to the nearest of the two holes. John! I screamed into the entrance. I remembered time standing still, and it seemed like forever before I heard John scream again. Run! he called, his voice getting closer. I ignored his warning instead peering into the darkness, trying to make out John's form as he approached, trying to be there to help him if he needed it. Suddenly, I was nose to nose with John. His hands grabbed each of my shoulders. He had the most terrified look on his face that I'd ever seen. Help! Pull! Pull! He screamed. I interlaced my arms with his, leaned back, and began pulling as hard as I could. A look of relief came across John's face. It only took less than a second for that look of relief to change to a mask of pure terror and pain. John began screaming in agony as something began pulling him back into the hole bored into the basement wall. I leaned back even further and I pulled for all I was worth. John's screams quickly turned into primal high-pitched shrieks, shrieks you'd expect to come from a terrorized little girl, not a 210-pound man. I saw the muscles of John's face go slack and the light go out of his eyes. Suddenly, I fell backwards onto the damp dirt floor, my hands still wrapped around John's arms. John's lifeless, paper-white face stared back at me blankly.
A swath of blood and entrails led from John to the entrance of the hole. Something had torn him in half. I scrambled backwards on my hands and heels. Something crept out of the mouth of the hole. Something lanky, long, and white. It took me several seconds to realize that it was an arm. Thick, pale blue ropey veins ran its length, and it ended in a gnarled hand with thick, long, yellow, dirty fingernails that looked more like claws. The long, bony fingers grasped John's exposed spine like a vulture's beak and dragged his lifeless torso back into the darkness. The loud sounds of lips smacking, flesh tearing, and bones crunching filled the basement. I bit my lip hard, not wanting to scream, not wanting to get the attention of whatever it was that was attached to that grotesque arm, whatever it was that had just ripped the love of my life to pieces and was now greedily consuming what was left of him. I shot up the ladder and bolted out of the farmhouse into my car. I drove out of there so fast that looking back on it, I can't believe that I didn't wreck. Luckily, I had left my purse in the car, having forgotten to bring it in after having returned from the store just before everything went to hell. I had to get as much distance between me and that farmhouse, between me and Vermont, as possible. I didn't stop until my car finally ran out of gas in Boston. Still in shock, I staggered into a greasy spoon. You could have heard a pin drop as soon as I stepped inside. Everyone stared at me. I must have looked a mess. I didn't realize until later, when a kind waitress was helping to clean me up in the ladies' room, that there was dried blood from my chin all the way down my neck from where I had bit my lip, and my clothes were covered in dirt. She and the owner took pity on me, him giving me a job as a waitress, and her letting me stay at her place until I got back on my feet. She figured that I had run away from an abusive boyfriend or husband with just a clothes on my back, like she had. I never corrected her. How could I? How could I possibly tell her what had really happened? What could I say to make her believe me? Make her believe that John had been killed by, what, some kind of monster? Only people can be monsters because monsters don't exist, right? If only that were true. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Ghost Notes and would like to take this opportunity to thank you for your continued support. We couldn't do it without you. Now go forth and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.